Welcome to Navara Live for Dahlia Gabriel's debut. <laughs> Say welcome. Dahlia, welcome to Navara Live. <laughs> welcome to Navara Live. Bigger and better than ever. <laughs> Similar but earlier and more often. That's going to be our new logo, I think, or slogan is what I should say, really. Um, a lot of big stories for you today. A report has come out on Prevent, which is a counterterrorism strategy. Seems like it was, you know, potentially launched with some ulterior motives and it has come out as expected. We'll explain that later. Also, some odd things going on at GB News and some more out-of-touch landlords. We do always like to show you them. First of all, though, we are talking about Vladimir Zelensky visiting the UK. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has paid a surprise visit to the UK in his first trip here since the war began almost a year ago. It's all been highly choreographed. Rishi Sunak was waiting on the runway for Zelensky's arrival. From there, he went to Downing Street and then on to Parliament's Westminster Hall, where he addressed MPs. In that speech to Parliament, Zelensky presented the speaker with a fighter pilot helmet and said this. The writing on the helmet reads, we have... Freedom, give us wings to protect it. It launches aggressions and breaks people's lives. You and us have already fought together against such evil. You and us already have the experience of defeating the evil that is generated by human nature. I'm not saying there will, be, there will be no more wars after the war ends. No, it is impossible to completely erase evil from human nature. Yet it is in our power to guarantee with words and deeds that the light side of human nature will prevail. The side you and us share and this stands above anything else. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for your support and leaving a British Parliament two years ago, I thanked you for delicious English tea. <laughs> and I will be leaving the Parliament today, thanking all of you in advance for powerful English planes. So he was a performer before he was a president. He's saying he, he thanks Britain in advance for sending planes. That hasn't been agreed to. So Rishi Sunak has said he's asked Defence Secretary Ben Wallace to consider which jets Britain might be able to send in future, but a spokesperson has stressed no decision about sending any has been made. Slightly less relevant to the war effort, but good for a photo opportunity. Zelensky then went on to meet the king. Charles told the Ukrainian leader that, quote, we've all been worried about you and thinking about your country. So what should we make of Zelensky's visit and should Britain send jets to Ukraine? I'm joined by Luke Cooper, an academic at LSE who heads up their Ukraine war research program. Luke, thank you for joining us. Let's start with the visit itself. Why has Zelensky chosen to come to the UK in particular and why has he chosen to come right now? The simple answer is that the UK has been a very big supporter um, of Ukraine throughout the course of this war and before. And it was interesting in the speech 
that he referenced the military training program that the UK was running in advance of the full-scale Russian invasion in February last year. So the UK had an existing program. And so he referred to the UK as one of the few countries that supported Ukraine prior to February 2022. So I think that was really significant. And also what struck me from the speech is more the global aspect rather than the UK aspect, because for sure, Boris Johnson is extremely popular uh, in Ukraine. That will, will come as a surprise, I'm sure, to your listeners and viewers and people like us in general, right? But in Ukraine, he's a really popular figure. But I thought the global audience was really significant. All of Zelensky's references to universal values, the importance of Russia being defeated here in order to protect the principle of territorial integrity and sovereign equality, that's a really important message globally, especially for states in the global south. Let's talk about the role of Boris Johnson in a moment, I suppose, the motivations of the various parties here. First of all, though, practically, do you have a sense of what difference fighter jets would make to the war? I mean, would, would this be a game changer in terms of, of the fighting in Ukraine? Oh, I think they would make a tremendous difference. Whether they're a panacea, a silver bullet, I'm, I, you know, I'm not, sh- not so sure. I think tanks are more significant for the kind of fighting that Ukraine will be looking to do if it's able to mount a spring offensive, but also if it's able to defend itself against an oncoming Russian offensive as well. So, you know, the the Russians have been relatively cautious on the use of their own air force in the conflict itself. And perhaps the biggest impact that fighter jets could have is their defensive capability, not their much-talked-about offensive capability. So the role that they could play in defending um, civilian areas away from where the front fighting is taking place. Let's talk about all the motivations in play here. You say, you know, Boris Johnson is popular in Ukraine. I mean, we played parts of an interview on Monday shows with Naftali Bennett, who is, well, now the former Prime Minister of Israel. He was taking part in negotiations between the Ukrainian and Russian sides at the start of the war. He suggested it's sort of the Western powers that sort of said, you know, don't sign this deal to Zelensky. And he sort of cited Boris Johnson as being particularly aggressive when it came to his relationship to Russia. Some of our viewers might be thinking, look, the reason Zelensky is is so warm to, to the UK and why Boris Johnson is popular there is because we've been especially aggressive, which might make you popular, but it might also be extending the war. I mean, what what do you make of that argument? Israel is situated in a very interesting place in this war overall. So I'm not convinced myself that Bennett is a very robust source. So, you know, Israel has carried out hundreds of airstrikes in Syria in recent years and is dependent on Russian security cooperation in Syria to carry out those attacks. I think in November last year, um, four Syrian Assad regime soldiers were killed in one of these strikes. So, I mean, it's quite a significant military intervention that Israel makes inside Syria that's dependent on Russian support. And of course, there is to some degree an element of political affinity too between Bennett, who is now, of course, the former PM of Israel, Netanyahu's back, he's in alliance with forces far further to the right, uh, indeed, outright fascist forces. So I think, you know, the most important part of the role that Israel plays in understanding this conflict is, I think, you know, in some establishment foreign policy circles, people complain about the global south not being robust enough 
on Ukraine. But as we know, Western governments won't be taken seriously in the global south for so long as they are supporting tacitly colonization of Palestine and opposing the colonization of Ukraine. So for me, that's the most important aspect of how Israel sits in this war. Let's go on to where these weapons might take us. I mean, you talked about territorial integrity earlier, which I suppose, you know, implicitly means to me, you want us to be giving fighter jets to Ukraine so they can win back Crimea. Now, that rings alarm bells to me. That makes you feel like, oh my God, we're begging for nuclear war. I mean, are you imagining fighter jets flying over Crimea to send the Russians home? I think it will be militarily difficult for Ukraine to retake Crimea. It's very politically difficult to put that forward in Ukraine at the moment. If you look at some of the opinion polling coming out of Ukraine, there's such overwhelming support for Ukraine's war of national liberation. I mean, you know, there's, it, it has in defining that in terms of retaking Crimea. So, you know, whether whether retaking Crimea is is militarily possible, I'll, uh, maybe I'll leave it to those um, to others to judge. But I think, you know, for me, the most important question in all of these that for us on the left to consider is what's our definition of what peace looks like. So, you know, there's the old vintage left wing slogan, no justice, no peace. And that seems to me like a good slogan to apply to the crisis that we see in Ukraine. So what does a just peace actually look like? And can a peace be considered a just peace if it freezes and institutionalizes Putin's imperialist invasion and his ethno-nationalism? So you know, peace at any cost seems to me incredibly problematic. Does that mean that we should you know, be dismissive of the dangers of nuclear war? Of course, of course we shouldn't. You know, we, we should absolutely be seeking to, to avoid that. But we also need to recognize that it's not a likely outcome of Ukrainian offensive operations to retake, you know, territory that is by any international law standard Ukrainian. So, you know, I'm not convinced that that it's likely that a, a successful Ukrainian operation in Crimea would lead to Vladimir Putin pressing the button. It's certainly hard to see how that would be in his interests. My concern here would be, one, even if it's a small possibility, a possibility of nuclear war is still a very big deal. And then w- what counts as a just peace? I mean, in a, in a way, I'm more of a utilitarian here. So it's more what people are, are going to be willing to accept. How can the least harm be done? How can we have this war not go on for as long as it possibly can, but also have some sort of sustainable peace? So it's obviously not going to be sustainable if Russia say we get to decide who rules Ukraine and we get to keep all of the territory we currently hold. I don't see that as a sustainable peace, but potentially going back to the borders that pertained before Russia's full-scale invasion, that to me seems possibly sustainable. And what seems key to that, and this is where I think we probably differ on the role of the West here, is I would be saying, look, what we need is for the West to be saying, yes, we support you in your your self-defense of your country, but at the same time, we're not going to support you till uh, achieve your maximalist aims. So we're not going to arm you to the teeth so that you can get back Crimea. We've got to be realistic here. And I think that would also potentially help Zelensky within Ukraine sort of argue for compromise within Ukrainian society. Because if you've got Boris Johnson saying, Zelensky, don't compromise, um, we'll arm you until you take back Crimea, then it's going to be harder for him if he wants to you know, seek peace to persuade elements within Ukrainian society. So I suppose that's where I'm coming from, where I feel like, yes, I'm not 
against arming Ukraine at all, but I feel like if we're too gung-ho about it and if we're not encouraging compromise, that could actually make peace harder. Sure. And I mean, many people on the political right agree with you, of course. I mean, Henry Kissinger like, mm. uh, famously put forward this argument um, last year. And was, was yeah, indeed. And, and was you know, pretty universally. Many people on the attacked. on the right agree with you too. I mean, all all, all the people. No, no, sorry, I, I didn't mean that as an attack. Uh, sorry, sorry, Michael, <laughs> I didn't mean that as, as an attack okay. on you. So sorry, don't take that the wrong way. Yeah. But um, no, I mean, I, all, all I mean is that this isn't a left-right consideration. Yeah, I'll accept there that. Are indeed yeah. People, yeah, yeah, there are indeed people on the right that would agree with you. Um, so so look. Uh, so all I would say is it's for Ukrainians to decide. I think that's just the principle that I think we should apply here. It's not for us in our virtual studio to, you know, start draw, redrawing what we think would be a utilitarianly just map of Ukrainian geography post-war. It has to be for Ukraine and Ukrainian democratic institutions to decide what form peace takes in the future. And we, and of course, we, we can enter into dialogue and discussion with them around that, absolutely. Obviously, I don't think anyone should be forcing the Ukrainians to enter into any kind of agreement. I also don't think that would be practical. So it's obviously for the Ukrainians to decide what agreement they sign. But by sending planes or tanks or whatever weaponry we decide to, we, we are becoming an active participant, right? So, so while I don't think we should force the Ukrainians to sign this or that, I think probably when we're deciding what arms to send, we should be thinking, well, does sending this particular arm make it more likely that they will come to some sort of compromise agreement? Or does it make it more likely that they'll look for the kind of maximalist demands that might end in, you know, nuclear apocalypse? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, no, I do completely see what you see what you mean. And obviously, again, this isn't this isn't a left wing argument either, because, you know, many people in the Biden administration have been saying the same thing over the last 12 months as well. So, you know, no, no one's saying any of these questions are easy. And while I do think that the main principle is that this is a question for Ukrainian democracy, of course, you're, you're not wrong to say that there's a matter of collective security at stake here. And of course, by providing weapons to Ukraine, all states that do so are becoming a party to the conflict. So, you know, so we would just, in a way, I think the caution that governments have shown, even our own like government that's inclined to be, as we know, a bit belligerent, but it has shown actually quite a bit of caution in terms of providing weapons. I would expect that to continue. I think that they could probably be and should be providing more in the way of, of tanks, fighter jets, you know, let, let, let's see how the argument goes. I don't have strong views on it, but I, I would be inclined to say yes on that score too. I completely take your point about sort of this isn't necessarily a left-right issue. There are realists on the right who are more on my side. There are NATO fanatics on the, the right who are more on, on, on your side. I totally accept that. I want to talk, I suppose, just very briefly about the geopolitics of this and the divisions within Europe. Is it potentially the case that Zelensky, I mean, as far as I understand it, he's gone to the USA, he's gone to Poland, and he's gone to the UK. He hasn't gone to France or Germany so far. Is he going for the countries who he thinks are going to be keenest to turn on the taps when it comes to arms and then hoping that will pressure France and Germany and those other countries who've been a bit more resistant? Quite possibly, although there was talk that he was going to go to Brussels, and I think he might be going to Brussels tomorrow and earlier in the week, but it was cancelled after a series of leaks. So I think there's mm. an element of 
you know, accident, accidental miscommunications and that kind of thing with these visits. But I think your assumption is correct. I mean, in a lot of foreign policy circles, it's become quite fashionable to hate on Germany a bit, hate on Schultz in particular, which I find a bit, you know, I'm a bit uncomfortable with. You know, German public debate is actually quite good at debating some of these issues. It doesn't have the same problem of good versus evil narratives. You're either with us or against us that British politics and American politics kind of has. And of course, Schultz was only representing the concerns of, of, of a lot of Germans where pacifistic sentiment is a lot stronger. So I think hopefully we can have uh, amongst all of Ukraine's allies and amongst the left and the right and stuff, a more German-like mature debate about the real trade-offs that exist on this issue. I think that's a reasonable place to end. Luke Cooper, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you. Let's go straight on to our next story. Prevent is a key part of Britain's counter-terrorism regime and was created to try to manage people at risk of radicalization. It originally gained notoriety for focusing on Muslims, and many people argue that it stoked anti-Muslim sentiment. But in recent years, more people have been referred for right-wing extremism than for the Islamist kind. Unhappy with that outcome, the Tories ordered a review. That review, conducted by William Shawcross, a former chair of the Charity Commission, has now reported this. Prevent must return to its core mission, countering all those ideologies that can lead people to committing or supporting acts of terrorism. This can only be done if Prevent properly understands the nature of these ideologies and how they attract and suborn individuals. It is correct for Prevent to be increasingly concerned about the growing threat from the extreme right, but the facts clearly demonstrate that the most lethal threat in the last 20 years has come from Islamism. And this threat continues. Prevent must address all extremist ideologies proportionately according to the threat each represents. However, my research shows that the present boundaries around what is termed by Prevent as extremist Islamist ideology are drawn too narrowly, while the boundaries around the ideology of the extreme right wing are too broad. This does not allow Prevent to reflect accurately and deal effectively with the lethal risks we actually face. The review contains 34 recommendations, and Home Secretary Suella Braverman has accepted all of them. In her response to the review, she wrote this, The threat from terrorism is becoming more diverse, but Islamist terrorism remains our primary and deadliest threat. The Islamist attacks in recent years provide stark reminders of the enduring threat posed by those inspired to violence by Islamist ideologies. Yet Islamist terrorism is severely underrepresented in Prevent. The review finds that there has been an institutional hesitancy to deal with Islamist extremism and a reticence in challenging those who claim that our efforts to tackle it are Islamophobic. This has also contributed to prevent applying different thresholds for different ideologies. It has defined the extreme right wing too broadly so that it sometimes draws in right wing and centre right politicians and commentators. Oh God, imagine drawing in a centre right or right wing commentator and thinking they were extreme. Unbelievable. Um, it is a fairly convenient conclusion for a right-wing politician, but there is a problem with the report. The executive summary of the review states that there have been six terrorist attacks in Britain since 2019, and that all of them were instances of Islamic extremism. That's a core argument made in the, the document. That's why it should be refocused on Islamic extremism, because that's where the real threat comes from. What that leaves out, though, are those terrorist attacks carried out by far-right extremists that have happened in that period. So in 2019, 
Vincent Fuller used a baseball bat to attack cars with non-white drivers in Stanwell, Surrey, inspired by the Christchurch terror attack on a mosque that had happened the day before. Fuller roamed the street shouting, all Muslims should die, white supremacists rule. Sounds pretty extreme and terroristic to me. Um, He then stabbed a teenager who he thought was Muslim. Luckily, the teen survived. The police declared it a terrorist act, as did the judge in the case. Then in October last year, far-right extremist Andrew Leake firebombed an asylum processing centre in Dover. The perpetrator, who committed suicide after the attack, had posted anti-Muslim sentiments on Facebook. The police investigating the attack declared it a terrorist incident. William Shawcross, the author of The Review, has also um, been known to have a history of expressing pretty strong anti-Muslim sentiments. In 2012, he said this... Europe and Islam is one of the greatest, most terrifying problems of our future. I think all European countries have vastly, very quickly growing Islamic Islamic populations. This is the guy who was brought in to write this supposedly impartial review into Prevent. Um, While Shawcross was charity commissioner, Muslim charities were also disproportionately subject to investigation. And Shawcross's track record is so bad that more than 450 Islamic groups and charities from across Britain refused to participate in the Prevent Review. Amnesty International have also given their verdict on the publication of the review. They say this, this review is riddled with biased thinking, errors and plain anti-Muslim prejudice. Frankly, the review has no legitimacy. William Shawcross's history of bigoted comments on Muslims and Islam should have precluded his involvement in this ill-starred review in the first place. There's mounting evidence that Prevent has specifically targeted Muslim communities and activists fighting for social justice and a host of crucial international issues, including topics like the climate crisis and the oppression of Palestinians. There is growing evidence that Prevent is having disastrous consequences for many people, eroding freedom of expression, clamping down on activism, creating a compliant generation and impacting on individual rights enshrined in law. Dahlia, what do you make of this? It does seem a bit like another example where the Tories say what they want to review to say before they commission it. So they say, we want this review to say that we're not focusing enough on Muslims, so we're going to get someone to chair it who doesn't really like Muslims. And lo and behold, you end up with a report that says we should target Muslims more. Yeah, and this suspicion that this kind of report will will end up in this way has has always been there. There was lots of concerns when this report was first commissioned, and actually Shawcross wasn't the first reviewer. Uh, it was originally actually um, Lord Carlyle who had to step down after a legal challenge found that he wasn't impartial, um, but actually was very much predisposed to be in favor of Prevent. And William Shawcross was actually his replacement. But as you've pointed out, for really good reason, a lot of, you know, Muslim groups pointed out that actually William Shawcross has got many of the same issues that Lord Carlyle had. And we are seeing this play out in the report very much so. Um, I've only started to read it, but it's very clear from the beginning that Shawcross very much buys into a lot of the fundamental premises of Prevent, despite criticism, not just coming from, as he sort of seems to like to frame it, as, you know, bad faith actors. In fact, he literally calls these criticisms as coming from bad faith actors. He kind of derides them as this sort of cranky, marginal groups. Actually, no, a lot of the critique of Prevent has come from very established human rights organizations, the UN Special Rapporteur on uh, Contemporary Forms of Racism, Amnesty International. And instead of like 
seriously addressing these concerns. And these concerns are basically rooted in the idea that the very fundamental premise of prevent is in this idea that certain communities need to be excessively monitored and reported upon because of this idea of pre-criminality, this idea that we need to identify pre-criminal markers in these communities. Obviously, we know where that's going to go. Where it's going to go is that normal behaviors exhibited by particular people is going to be viewed through the lens of suspicion and criminality. So we see, you know, Muslim kids, Muslim teenagers having quite normal experiences, like going through exhibiting signs of depression, signs of anxiety, or exhibiting more interest in their religion, or having, you know, changes in their mood or whatever, things that teenagers go through, suddenly being viewed by institutions that they're supposed to trust, like doctors, like schools, etc., being viewed through the lens of suspicion. And there's no regard in this report for what it does to a community to be under that level of scrutiny, for what it does to a person, especially a young person who might find themselves going through this referral process and what it does to their relationship to institutions that they are supposed to trust, to trust. And not only does Shawcross not take these things into account, rather he just derides them as sort of cranky critiques from the margins, but actually he doubles down on some of the most worrying aspects of it. You know, when you read through the report and he keeps bringing up this idea of Islamism, Islamism, you know, Islamism is without doubt the biggest threat. Obviously, as is often the case when we're talking about things like terrorism, what is and is not considered a terrorist, an act of terroristic violence, what is and is not considered a serious threat becomes, is really, you know, crucial here. And it's very clear that for William Shawcross, the kinds of casual as well as very serious form normalization of far-right thinking and far-right talking points is not a cause for concern for him. But he actually doubles down on a lot of the fundamental issues with Prevent, namely this very expansive and loose understanding of what quote-unquote Islamism is. He goes from saying, you know, it's this very specific ideology that emerges in this historically specific moment and, you know, has these kinds of implications, to then suddenly talking about how Islamist groups will often talk about fighting for, quote-unquote, oppressed people. So this then becomes like this catch-all term for brown people doing things that make me feel uncomfortable. And not to mention that he's calling for this to be expanded. He says, you know, we need to expand this to include nonviolent forms of Islamic extremism. Well, what does that mean? Could you include, you know, and especially if you're including standing up for oppressed people, just as Ilias Nagdi pointed out in the quote that you um, gave from him, that could then be stretched out to include any Muslim group that talks about, about the oppression of Palestine. But the final thing that I also wanted to point out here is that the issue around right-wing extremism. And I think that what this report does is it shows the fundamental problems with thinking that Prevent would be okay if it just focused on right-wing extremism as much as it focuses on Muslim communities. This report actually kind of shows the fundamental problem there. First of all, this is not the context in which Prevent was established and what is resourcing and giving the political drive behind Prevent. It's not a panic 
or a concern about the rise of far-right thinking in this country. It was fir- it's firmly rooted in a heightening of the war on terror, which comes with it a heightening of suspicion of Muslim people. But secondly, as this report demonstrates quite well, if you were to put the same level of scrutiny on extreme right-wing rhetoric as you do on what you're calling Islamism, you would have to take on some of the major broadcasters and broadcasting institutions in our country. You would have to take on the fact that the Daily Mail allowed Katie Hopkins to write the most dehumanizing and extremist and provocative columns for several years, where she was calling, you know, refugees cockroaches, which we know is like one of the first stages of fascism is framing marginalized people as less than human. So if you were to kind of put right-wing scrutiny under that same level, you would have to go right into the heart of establishment, the establishment in this country. And that's why this idea of like, well, as long as you have, you know, tit for tat, one right-wing extremist for one Muslim extremist, then it would be fine. It's like the tools of the program and the context in which it was established does not really allow for that kind of equal application because that's not what the purpose of this program is. The purpose of this program is to create an air of suspicion around a particular marginalized, racialized group. And when you have, you know, people in the highest levels of office, um, you know, reiterating right-wing talking points, you're not going to be able to apply a program like Prevent Equally across the board. There's two issues with the report, we should be clear. So one, the critique from the left of Prevent is often that it should just didn't exist at all. This report, as far as I understand it, wasn't so much should it exist, it was should it refocus on Muslims instead of focusing on the far right. And I suppose within the report, he does say all of the critics are wrong, Prevent is great. Essentially, we just need to redirect it a little bit. I suppose I take your point in terms of how it does function. At the same time, violent extremism does exist, terrorism does exist. At what point does the state get involved? I think obviously, like, there's a question of like, if there is imminent danger, then action needs to be taken. What worries me, in, and this is something that has been embedded in so much of our policing and counterterrorism strategy, is again, this space of the pre-criminal, which isn't about, we think that this person or this, you know, group of people might do, you know, are imminently planning on doing something. It's that we think that this group of people who haven't, made any plans to do anything, haven't indicated anything, but just have a series of often quite arbitrarily established markers that makes us think that at some point in the future, they might, you know, and where where that becomes problematic is that when you start to treat people in that way, you actually alienate them further from the society that they are living in. When you make them feel like they are under scrutiny and under a suspicious lens it doesn't actually help for, you know, cohesion and, into, and you know, the feeling of belonging that makes these kinds of incidents far less likely. I think the worrying thing here is, is this focus on nonviolent Islamism, because I don't really understand what that is. I mean, I think if, if someone is online reading loads and loads of stuff, unless they're like an academic researching it, reading loads and loads of stuff, you know, like ISIS propaganda, ISIS documents, just as if they're online reading loads of like Anders Breivik manifestos, I think it's probably fair enough for like someone to knock on their door or for some intervention to be made. But it's, it seems strange to me, what, what is non-violent? Is it, like, what is non-violent far-right extremism? I mean, because non-violent far-right extremism is basically what's on GB News. So I don't see how they're going to cast that net in a way that isn't 
creates a very broad net or when it when it comes to sort of making a community seem suspicious. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Let's move on. On the theme of nonviolent right-wing extremism, actually. GB News has always veered towards the wilder side of broadcast news, but the channel is now officially out of control. A key figure amid the chaos is the far-right host Mark Stein. Stein had been off-air since mid-December when he had two heart attacks, but he's now publicly rejected his offer for a return. He filmed this angry address from his living room. We're going to do a new edition of the Mark Stein Show uh, this week, assuming my occluded ventricles are up to it. Uh, but it won't be on GB News. The, the state of play uh, between me and GB News is uh, that they have sent me a contract. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that Stephen Crowder thing where you read out the terms of your contract because uh, I don't think that makes, personally, think makes for great television. So I'm just going to uh, skim a couple of clauses. These are the ones. People have noticed a change. Now, this came up. Uh, I was already set to return to GB News, and uh, the uh, habitual liar who runs the joint uh, then uh, decided that uh, we needed a defibrillator in the studio for me to be able to go back. Uh, and then uh, a lady who uh, works on the show said, no problem, defibrillators are us, uh, sending one round in 20 minutes. Then he decided something else. So the state of play at the moment is that he's sent me a contract. This is a guy called uh, Angelus Frangopoulos, the CEO of GB News. And the contract's very, he's chosen to change the terms uh, by which we do the show, which uh, would be stressful, uh, but I, you know, I've had two heart attacks, so I laugh at stress. I scoff at stress. You don't stress me out. You may be a homicidal maniac intent to bringing on a third fatal heart attack, but you'll have to do better than this. But I did think it was interesting in light of what's happened at GB News. There's this new clause, editorial responsibility. For the avoidance of doubt, as the Ofcom license holder, uh, GB News has editorial responsibility for The Mark Stein Show and all content produced for GB News uh, by the presenter and the US producers. Therefore, the parties agree that GB News's editorial decisions shall prevail, uh, which I wouldn't really mind. <laughs> but I remember we had a little Ofcom uh, uh, back and forth about 10 minutes before I went on air uh, a couple of months back, and uh, I, my final words about the the so-called compliance officer uh, was that he was, quote, Ofcom's bitch. And at that point, I hung up. Well, Ofcom's bitch has managed to have his revenge now. So the reason Ofcom regulations might be a point of dispute between Stein and his former bosses is that last June, he interviewed COVID conspiracy theorist Naomi Wolf. She made a number of false claims about the COVID vaccine and viewers made 411 complaints to Ofcom triggering an investigation. In the new contract that Stein was offered, it said that if he goes against GB News's editorial standards, he'd be held liable for any Ofcom fine. So they clearly didn't want to be taking any of those risks anymore. Now, you know, th these guys, are they care about their profit margin. So it might be understandable that they would make that precaution. But it hasn't gone down well with GB News fans. Texas Lindsay, who has 71,000 Twitter followers, said this. Breaking. 
Legendary news anchor Mark Stein quits GB News after they threatened to make him pay fines to the media regulators for casting doubt on safety of COVID-19 vaccines. Significant loss for GB News. Thank you for your bravery and integrity, Mark Stein. Eva Vladingerbrock has over 300,000 Twitter followers and has appeared on GB News and Fox News multiple times. Um, She also weighed in. The truth on why my friend Mark Stein isn't back on GB News. After he suffered two heart attacks, they lied to him, used his medical condition against him and tried to force him to comply with Ofcom's censorship rules, even holding him liable. How low can you go, Frangopoulos? That's the Twitter handle of the, the guy who manages GB News. Current host then went on Twitter to encourage their free speech loving audience to get on board with Ofcom. Actually, they're in favor of the regulators now. This is from presenter Bev Turner. It's worth remembering that YouTube is far worse at quickly removing content than Ofcom, who, believe it or not, have guidelines which are easy to navigate with very little effort. Sometimes it's just a sentence which provides balance. Do you really want to broadcast media which is completely unregulated? Pedophilia, religious or political extremists, any number of nutcases broadcasting into your front room. Imagine nutcases broadcasting into your front room. If you work at GB News, it must seem completely alien. Really? I've never been told what I can or can't say on GB News, but I'm not sufficiently selfish to mouth off and risk losing appeals to Ofcom, whatever. That was a GB News host warning how terrible it would be if nutcases were allowed allowed on our, our TV to talk about extremist ideas. Speaking of nutcases espousing extremist ideas, Neil Oliver is a historian who peddles conspiracy theories on the channel. In a recent show, he said this. Here in Britain, they like to tell us we have the mother of parliaments. It's hardly true, but it's a good line for the tourists. But if our parliament wins this war, it will have consequences for the whole of the West and the whole of the world. Those aware of the silent war know it's been going on for many years. Some learned souls will tell you it's been the stuff of decades, if not centuries, passed between generations of politicians and others. The strategic objective is total control of the people. This is being achieved not by bullets and bombs, but by stealth, sleight of hand, and the misuse of legislation. Those in pursuit of centralized power of a one-world government, hate, and with every fibre of their being, sovereign nation-states. That said, they reserve a special loathing for national constitutions that define the rights of people in perpetuity. Total control of the sort the state has in mind requires the hoodwinking of the people into thinking Parliament is the highest power in the land, that they tell us what to do. It's interesting to note that hoodwinking is a term from the art of falconry, whereby a falcon with lethal talons, the swiftest attacking flight and the sharpest eyesight of all living creatures is kept docile and under control simply by having a little hood placed over its head. So I have to say, I enjoyed the details about falcons, but the rest of it was fairly concerning, I suppose. We have a silent war, a one-world government and generations of politicians trying to take control of the people. Very rousing, very paranoid, you might think. GB News is now under fire for alleged anti-Semitism. Journalist Matthew Sweet tweeted this. Okay, this is serious. The Coast guy, so that's Neil Oliver, would seem to be summarizing the arguments of secret weapons for silent wars, a protocols of the Elders of Zion type hoax document that circulates as real in the maddest circles of conspiracy culture. Condemnation of GB News followed from the board of deputies and also um, from the all-party parliamentary group against anti-Semitism, Nicola Richards is their chair. She said 
This media diversity is incredibly important, but not at the expense of professional standards. These developments should be of concern to GB News editors, owners, and producers, and I hope they will be carefully reviewing them. With any public platform, there is a responsibility not to open the door to conspiratorial anti-Semitism or other misinformation. No doubt Ofcom will be keeping a close eye on developments at GB News, but let's hope that the channel will get its house in order. This isn't just the board of deputies. This is like a, a very well-known uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. It's It deliberately, you know, creates this atmosphere of, just like you said, paranoia, suspicion. It takes, you know, a religious, uh, racialized minority community and makes everything that they do be perceived through a lens of suspicion and threat. It's actually ironically, very much like the kind of atmosphere created by something like like Prevent, you know, and um, there's a lot of parallels actually drawn between like the Trojan horse letter and the um, Elders of Zion letter. And this is why this is so dangerous. The thing with GB News is that GB News keeps running up against the same kind of internal contradiction, which is that, you know, it's desperate to be taken seriously as a legitimate news source. And it really wants that validation but also its raison d'etre is to be completely batshit. Like it's founded on the paranoia and, you know, in delusions of a very small number of very, very wealthy men who have far too much money and an imagined sense of persecution. You know, people who, for whom the entire world is like designed for their comfort and, and ease, who now believe that they are being persecuted and are being cancelled um, constantly just because groups of people that they're not used to having to listen to are now having like the tiniest little platform. And so when you have an organization whose kind of foundation is based in that trying to drum up paranoia and, you know, ultimately rooted not in a rigorous analysis of the world, but in like delusional paranoia, it's going to give rise to this kind of stuff. You know, it, it marketed itself from the very beginning as, you know, the British version of Fox News, or it was kind of positioned in that way. And yet at the same time, it's trying to be, you know, taken seriously. And, you know, obviously, uh, Fox News, this is something that has developed over, you know, over 20 years, it's been embedding itself in the news, in the news landscape of the US in a way that GB News hasn't yet had the chance to do here. And I, I do actually think that as sort of enjoyable as it is to watch GB News constantly tie itself in these knots and kind of run up against this contradiction, I don't necessarily think that it's impossible that a Fox News style broadcasting, you know, company or whatever could become as powerful in the UK. I think that there is a, currently they're in a stage of experimentation where they're trying to figure out how this could work. You know, the, the context is kind of different. The US doesn't have like a Ofcom style regulator that really gets into this kind of nitty gritty, like fairness doctrine or like fact checking and things like this. So they don't come up against the same kind of institutional resistance. But I think that, you know, I as, as ridiculous as it is now and as failed an experiment as it is now, these are people with a lot of money who are willing to throw a lot of resources until the, until it works. Um, and so maybe one day they'll find a way to move through that contradiction. But but yeah, it, it has a crisis of identity. It wants to be taken seriously. But the ideological foundations of it are delusional and batshit. So it, it's going to keep having having this issue 
for now, it's entertaining to watch. I just hope that they don't get any better at it. Apparently, Ofcom are considering action against GB News over the content of that Neil Oliver clip we just showed you. But if the station does get shut down, now I think this is unlikely, you will still have another source of high-quality right-wing news um, because over on Talk TV, the Murdoch-owned right-wing platform, um, they're doing some pretty hard-hitting journalism, as you can see from this tweet from Piers Morgan. Update. In a global TV exclusive, the woman who took Prince Harry's virginity in a field behind a village pub gives me her truth after he invaded her privacy in a kiss-and-tell book. <laughs> My interview with ex-royal groom Sasha Walpole airs on Piers Uncensored. Some hard-hitting journalism there. Let's go to our final story. It's been a tough year for workers who are facing real-terms pay cuts. It's been a tough year for people in poverty struggling to pay their energy bills. And it's been a tough year for anyone unfortunate enough to get sick and to need to use our crumbling NHS. But maybe I'm missing someone. I feel like there's another group of people who are having a really difficult year that we just don't consider enough on this show. That's right, landlords. I just feel like I have to say that being a landlord in London is a horrible, horrible job. And it's so thankless. I'm a good landlord. I'm a landlord for one property. And my tenant just moved out after living there for three years. I gave her a perfect, beautiful, freshly painted, everything in it property. I come back after she's moved out. My furniture is missing. Um, she spray painted, spray painted in gold my fireplace, pieces of my furniture. Couldn't even bother to put newspaper on the carpet. It's all splotches. And everyone's talking about like London tenants, yeah? And like, oh, poor them. You know, what about poor me? Poor landlord. I have one property. You know, people think, oh, landlords are like, they're fine. You know, we're like Bernie Madoff or something, sitting at home, counting stacks of cash, you know? Actually, that rent I'm making, it's like half of it goes to all the payments you have to make, you know, and all the things you have to do just to please tenants. And then we just get treated so bad. I just don't get it. Like... What's the deal? The deal is we're annoyed that we're all paying your mortgages. You take half of our income every month to pay your mortgage. You know, you always hear this from, I hardly make any money. All the money I make goes on ex expenses and repairs. I don't normally believe it anyway. But even if that is the case, if most of your profit goes on repairs, still, in 30 years time, you're going to have a very valuable house. And guess who will have bought you that house? People who go out to work instead of just waiting for rent to come in at the end of the month. Dahlia. Do you think she put her argument persuasively? What about me? What about poor me? What about the landlords? <laughs> oh my God, just awful. Like, first of all, landlordism isn't a job. And if you think it's a job, then why are you so surprised that people are asking you to work for your check? It's not a job. It is an investment and investment comes with risk. You aren't entitled to a return on your investment. That's capitalism, baby. That's the system that you're so into. Like, keep up with the program. That's not us making those rules. That's the rules that you are benefiting from. Secondly, it's also not thankless. You get a lot of free money for it, for doing 
barely anything. And thirdly, obviously, there's this like ridiculously annoying idea of like the critique of landlordism doesn't apply to me because I'm a good landlord. First of all, this landlord is in London, which means that she is probably getting nearly 50% of her renter's paycheck every month. If you are getting 50% of my paycheck every month, you don't get to like get a pat on the back or like to get a nice little round of applause for giving me a decent place to live. Like there's this idea that if you're not letting, you know, if you're not letting your the the property be infested by vermin, if it's not falling apart, then somehow that means that you're a good person. It's like giving you a dignified place to live is the bare minimum for the amount of free money that you get. It's not a fair deal. You can't just be like, it's a fair deal if I'm giving this person a decent place to live. Our housing stock has been bought up by a relatively small number of people who are now holding us all hostage because they have, they own all of the stuff that we need. Okay. So nothing about this is fair. So the idea that you should get, you know, props for making the place that you are holding me hostage in decent is ridiculous. And it's also really interesting because I actually watched some of her follow-up videos. And in one of them, she talks about how obviously other landlords got in touch with her after she put this video out and told her about the idea of, you know, you can inspect a property as long as you give 24 hours notice. And she said, oh, you know, I didn't know you could do this. I thought that because this was someone's home, you can't just go in whenever you want. Now that I know I can do that, I'm going to make use of that. So it just goes to show that like, it doesn't matter what your individual personality is or what you think about yourself as. This is an economic relationship. You have economic and legal power over your tenant. And I know for sure that when push comes to shove, you will exercise that power. So whether or not you think of yourself as a good person is irrelevant here. And finally, again, that obviously ridiculous idea of, you know, oh, you say poor tenants, what about poor landlords? When we talk about the violation of tenants' rights in this country, we are talking about people living in dilapidated, unsafe housing. We are talking about the number of people who are being hospitalized with breathing issues because there is so much unresolved damp in their property. We are talking about unsafe vermin infestations. In one of the houses that I've rented, I've been renting for over 10 years. In one of them, we had a gas cooker that was malfunctioning and was basically a death trap. And it took us months and months to wrangle the landlord into fixing it. So we're talking about people living in unsafe housing. And you're coming on TikTok to cry because someone got a bit of paint on your carpet. Like we're not living in the same world. You and I are not the same. And so obviously it's completely absurd. She deserves all the backlash she's gotten. And I just want to say good for that tenant spray painting her fireplace gold. I hope she enjoyed her gold fireplace. Because one thing that's so rank about renting is that you never get to really make your house into a home because you don't know how long you're going to be there. You don't know how long it's going to be before your landlord hikes up your rent and you can't afford to live there anymore. So you're always reluctant to really invest in the place that you live and make it your own. And so I actually love it for her that she was like, screw you. I want a gold fireplace and I'm going to make my dreams come true. I don't care. Like take all my deposit. I don't even care. So good for her. I hope she had a good time. I just wish they had TikTok in the 15th century so we could watch the the sort of self-pitying videos of minor feudal lords. Like I've only got a few acres. The guy down the road from me has a whole a whole region. 
And, uh, you know, I know these, these serfs have to work 50% of their time on my land to, to give me the wealth I have, but I've got so many rooms to heat. No one thinks of the minor feudal lords. They didn't have TikTok, though, so we'll have to survive with our very own minor feudal lords who are the landlords of Britain. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you so much for having me. My first Navarra Live. Feels different, doesn't it? Thanks to all of you for tuning in once again to this show. Make sure to come back tomorrow evening at 6pm. We'll be live again. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.